Hello, and welcome to the Lift Church uh, Discipleship webcast. My name is Levi Heath. I'm the Region Support Intern. And this man right over here is Robin Waller. That's, that is true. It's good to be with you guys again. We are into First Things Part 3, the second part of Part 2. Anyway, we're here. It's going to be great. We're talking about objectivity, not opinions, Part 2. It's going to be a good evening. True. So Same. get comfortable, and we'll be right back. Let me show you what I mean. What I got is the new thing. Listen up, I'm gonna say it all right now. All right, well, as we jump into news of the week, a few quick things to throw your way. First off, we've got our graduate celebration happening this Saturday online at 7 p.m. We'd love for you to join us to celebrate our grads, and we'll be delivering some cupcakes. So again, whoever is in charge of the cupcake parade, post it in the chat, and they will let you know how you too can get a cupcake. It's going to be a blast. Speaking of blasts, the Amazing Race will also be a blast, and it starts on Monday. Um, so make sure you you sign up, sign your team up, and um, invite some people that are not in your simple church to join you. It'd be great. You can talk to and find all the details on the general announcements chat on Discord. Taylor posted them today. Thanks, Taylor. Mm -hmm. uh, as we celebrate a few things, want to just highlight just how awesome it is to see all of our regions gathering after our live cast for regional gatherings on Sunday. So as we've shifted to uh, prepare for in-person gatherings, hopefully one day soon, we have been gathering on Discord in our regions. Really encouraging to see everybody embracing that. Thanks, church. You guys have just been great. It's very awesome. Um, what's also awesome, sorry for the segues, Meredith for stepping into a team lead role um, with the webcast interview team. So clap at home. I'm not allowed to clap here, but... You can. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that, Meredith. Thanks for stepping up to serve and helping to coordinate those. I uh, also want to uh, just celebrate the fact that we have more of our Simple Churches engaging with the uh, Cultural Exchange Program. And uh, I'm sure Nicole uh, Haverkamp would love to share details on what that looks like or at least point you in the right direction so that you and your Simple Church can connect with more international students. And the Guelph uh, family has been doing an awesome job uh, gathering 500 people um, on the Guelph server. Um, and they've been trying to brainstorm for uh, things that they can do to serve them and build relationships. For sure. And speaking of relationships, you actually just hosted uh, a 101 watch party for Brock. Now, we haven't talked about 101 a lot lately, mm -hmm. um, but 101 is an important part of helping people figure out, like, what is Lift Church? Yeah. we're a little bit weird. We're, we're not super normal. Um, and appreciate you organizing that. How'd it go? Yeah, it went pretty well. Um, yeah, some mm -hmm. people showed up, and um, a lot of people from... Uh, that didn't even need to do um, 101 anymore. They just showed up and uh, supported us. And it was really cool uh, seeing that support in our family. That's great. So I was just thinking, if you have people that haven't done 101 in your simple church, mm. you uh, can host a watch party for them or you can enroll them directly on Engage. Absolutely. Easy peasy right there on the home screen. So that said, we're also going to kick it over to Kirsten and Aiden, who are going to celebrate a few more things today. 
Hey Church, I just want to take a second to celebrate Connor um, for being sent to Jaden Simple Church and choosing intentional proximity with the Simple Church this summer so that he can see his non-Christian friends integrated into um, church family. And so I'm really proud of you, Connor, and yeah, keep going. Hey Church, I'm here to celebrate my apprentice, Oge. She recently made a decision to stay at Mohawk next year instead of going to continue her education somewhere else. And it uh, really just came out of a heart to commit to church as family and living into that and continuing to see what happens there. So really, really proud of you, Oge, for not doing something that's easy, but for doing something that puts church family first. Cool. Um, Hey, Leah. How, it's nice to see you. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Pretty great. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be talking to you about uh, Pinky Lewis and how you got into that. So how and when did you become a part of Pinky Lewis? So uh, when I joined Mac last year, I actually um, went on Lyft's website and just signed up for everything. But um, due to COVID, I couldn't um, be part of anything physically. But I joined Pinky in October last year. Ava Van Heerden actually messaged me and invited me out to Simple Church mm. and explained that Pinky Lewis was where her Simple Church was already consistently serving in person. And I really wanted to get involved with Lyft, so I saw it as a good opportunity to get involved. And yeah, I became part of Ava Simple Church through the SME. And yeah, just serving alongside Ava Simple Church was my introduction to the family and made me want to root in all my aspects of the Simple Church Triangle. That's so cool, starting and serving and then moving into uh, joining our family. That's such an awesome way to join Lyft. Um, so in what ways do you serve the Pinky Lewis community and why? So our main community aspect is uh, meeting their spiritual needs mm. through the meals that we prepare and groceries and um, clothing and their emotional needs through conversation and just building trust and just forming relationships. Um, some simple churches actually serve the Pinky team through preparing the meals that we hand out. Uh, shout out to Gordon and Caleb. They actually sometimes prepare stuff and bring it out. And yeah, there are just a lot of ways that people can serve the Pinky Lewis community, like mm -hmm. making meals, um, donations, and just praying for the community as well. I think prayer is a big aspect of it too. And mm -hmm. we also just started uh, live stream worship. Um, yeah, we begin worship and just doing small devotions, which is live stream on Instagram. If you want to tune in, it's at more than a moment underscore Hamilton. And yeah, we just hope to do it in person once COVID passes. That's so cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome meeting the needs of the people of Hamilton. Um, so a few more questions. What has serving at Pinky taught you about following Jesus and how has it helped to it? inform your identity as a servant of God? So before serving, um, I think I had almost a prideful spirit. Um, yeah, it, it's just taught me how to just love on someone I don't know and just show Christ-like behavior to someone who doesn't know Christ and just recognizing and knowing that everyone in the community is as equal and loved by God. And I, I knew this before, Pinky, but I never really put it into perspective, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Mm. I like your vulnerability and, and sharing that. 
Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, why is serving such a big part of the Simple Church Triangle? Yeah, in terms of the Simple Church Triangle, um, mm-hmm. serving together just like leads to growth as a Simple Church because you just watch one another grow and uh, you just learn from one, one another and you just build closer relationships and just bonds. Mm-hmm. And serving also develops a deeper love for Jesus and just solidifies him as a center of our lives and just a root of our Simple Church. And it is through serving that we actually get to live out what we talk about in our huddles. Like James 1 verses 2 says, be doers of the word, not only hearers. Uh, That's such like a prime example. Um, Whatever we talk about in huddle, we act out in serving. And Mm -hmm. yeah, as a church, just serving allows us to um, allow someone to have a comfortable and familiar space that they get to go to each week. And just it just naturally leads to a conversation about Christ and Christianity and just faith. Mm. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, well, I'm going to pray for you, and then, yeah, you're free to keep on watching the, the webcast. Um, God, you're amazing. Uh, thank you for Leah. Thank you that um, she just has a heart for serving. Um, God, it's so cool to see someone starting to serving and move into our family because of that. Because it just, it's... It's exactly what we need. Um, yeah. Uh, God, I pray that you would help her um, stay uh, encouraged as she continues to lead um, at Pinky. And if things don't go go well, that, um, that you will encourage her and be her peace and joy. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, God. Uh, thank you for Leah. And... I pray that you help Leah have a great rest of the day. Uh, In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much, Leah. No worries. And now we're going to be moving on to the Discipleship Resource of the Week. Awesome. I wanted to quickly share with you the latest tool that the team has prepared to help communicate some of our discipleship emphases, of which missional living is a particularly important one, and in some ways a particularly challenging one, because it's where we really get into the nuts and bolts of how we organize our life. Now, this tool was designed to help you integrate your relationships. What that means is taking the relationships that you have with believers and non-believers in all spheres of your life and bring them together through our church family, that they might know Jesus. Now, to help people do this, because it can sometimes be a challenging concept, this tool helps break it down, and it's designed to uh, be worked through with someone. So the idea is that you would walk through with someone in your simple church or someone you're discipling with this tool. And so on this first page, you can see it outlines the three types of relationships that we have up with God, in to our brothers and sisters in the family, and out towards non-believers and helps identify that in order to build relationships with all three, we need time, proximity, and vulnerability. Now, to help people kind of identify where they're at in terms of time, proximity, and vulnerability with those three types of relationships, there's a grid that people can plot their relationships on and sort of identify where the strengths and weaknesses they have in terms of sharing uh, and integrating their lives together. 
For example, they may regularly spend time with fellow believers, but not be very good at integrating non-believers into their life. This page in the second part will help identify some of those strengths and weaknesses. But page three is really the key to the exercise. It's where we can develop a plan of action. And so the idea here is that people would list a set of weekly activities that they do. The whole idea with missional living is that it should be part of our rhythms of life, not something that we add to our lives. And so all seven days of the week, there are opportunities for us to share a meal, uh, go or participate in an activity, or provide a way to invite someone to come along. And this is a way for you to invite uh, into that context. So for example, you could say Fridays I go to the grocery store and Saturdays I barbecue. Therefore, I can invite Billy to come with me to the grocery store. And I know John uh, is also going to be uh, free on Saturday, so I'll invite him to come on Saturday, uh, along with Timmy, who is at the grocery store on Friday. So trying to bring that whole idea together, that it's in time, proximity, and vulnerability, all three that we find our relationships. So I'd encourage you walk through with this tool with someone that you know. Um, I'm actually gonna personally use it in my Simple Church. As soon as I saw it, I was like, this is perfect for what my Simple Church needs. And so we're gonna talk about it next week. So thanks team for putting that together. You can find it on engage.livechurch.ca or on the app under resources. I believe it's the second or third one in the list. So that's it for me. I'm going to pass it to Laura, who's going to do the Daily Devo Reflection for this week. Hey church, my name is Laura and I'm a simple church leader in the Barack region. Uh, so one Devo day that I found particularly impactful this past week was our time in Genesis 11, looking at the Tower of Babel. So I think that's how I say it. Um, so at first I was kind of like, I don't really go around building towers, and I was never good at it, even when I did use Lego. Um, but as I read more into the text, I was like, ah, there's more here. So, um, it just kind of reminded me a lot of what we've been talking about, uh, as a church with regards to first and second things, and the importance of putting Jesus first in our lives for everything that we do. Um, so the people here, while getting together and building a tower together, maybe doesn't sound so awful. Um, they did it with the purpose of selfish ambition and glorifying themselves instead of putting God and his purpose as the forefront of what they wanted to do. So um, just a good reminder that, uh, yeah, Jesus comes first, man. So hopefully as we all go into this next week, we can remember to make sure that everything we're doing points both literally and figuratively towards Jesus above everything else. All right, well, welcome back to Objectivity, Not Opinions. This is uh, was originally intended to be a part of the second episode in the uh, First Thing series, but I broke it out last week and actually broke this one out again, so it's going to be another kind of next step on this this week. And the reason for that is that I, I just really feel like we needed to take time. I Sometimes I find that I throw too much content at you guys and... Um, and it sort of is like uh, brain overload. So hopefully go a little slower tonight um, and we can we can process through some really important uh, concepts that influence how we think about discipleship. And so today we're really going to try to hone in a little deeper on this idea of objectivity, not opinions. We live in a world where, man, everybody's got an opinion on everything. And if you want, you can find somebody supporting 
literally any idea under the sun. Like it's just, it is just mind boggling. And even in the church world, there's a wide diversity of perspectives. And again, in the church world, you can find somebody supporting virtually any perspective you could imagine. How do we navigate that? Like, what do we do with that? How do we disciple that? Do we just say, well, I throw up our hands and give up? Really practically, over the last, you know, number of months, I've had people ask some sort of variation of the, the question, well, why, why do we need as a church family to take a position or be clear on the X, Y, or Z subject? If there's so many different perspectives out there, like why can't we just sort of be welcoming to all perspectives? And I think that this question is, is really genuinely motivated by, in most cases, a desire to be compassionate and welcoming. And as Christians, we're, we're definitely called to be compassionate, kind, patient, slow to speak, and eager and quick to listen. But at the same time, we're also called to contend for the truth. Believing that truth, believing the truth that even hard truths are where freedom and true compassion lie. And so this leads me to my first second thing that I want us to identify. And the thing with second things is that we tend to put them in first place position. But if you take a second thing and you put it in first place position, you will end up not really gaining the thing you are desiring in the second thing, and you will also lose the thing that should be a first thing. And so the second thing I want to talk about today to start with is diversity of opinion. Diversity of opinion. And this needs to and, this, and, and must be a second thing behind simply the first thing of truth. Diversity of opinion must be a second thing to the first thing of truth. Now, the thing with second things is that they're valuable. You know, we, we need to affirm that there is a diversity of perspectives on issues, and that's a really good thing. It's a really good second thing. We as Christians actually are made better when we embrace diversity of perspectives and listen to other ideas and um, ways of reading scripture. And, and when we do embrace or at least encounter other perspectives or opinions, we, we need to do so charitably and kindly, generously, and patiently. Diversity of perspective is a really good thing because we're not perfect. You know, it's worth noting that there are multiple ways to read and understand Scripture, and there can be no doubt about that. And given that there are multiple ways to read and understand Scripture, and the fact that we're not perfect at reading it, we should be humble to accept that our reading may not be very good, and that another person's reading may be better. And the value of diversity is that we can learn from one another. The ability to learn from people that hold different perspectives from us is really important. I want you to hear, hear this, because in a moment I'm going to really speak to some of the downsides of when we misplace it in too high of a position. But hear me first, diversity of perspective is really important. And so I want to open up with a question, and the question is this. Does our appeal to diversity of opinions on an issue result in a loss 
of truth. You see, diversity is not a first thing. It's a second thing. We shouldn't aim for diversity of perspective just because it's a good thing in itself. Our primary pursuit must be for truth. Valuing and cherishing of all people should be a first thing, but valuing and cherishing of all people's ideas most certainly should not be a first thing. We need to distinguish between valuing people and valuing their ideas. We need to value people. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. We need to value all people, but we should not value all ideas equally because not all ideas are equal. Why is this the case? Well, you see, truth is, by definition, the very definition of truth is that it's exclusive. Two contradictory statements cannot simultaneously be true. For example, Jesus was either resurrected from the dead or he was not. One of those is true and one of those are not. Truth is exclusive. The second part of this is that not all perspectives are equally valid. There are bad answers and bad perspectives out there. Not everybody has a good approach to answering questions. Not all perspectives are equally justified or supported. Just because there is a diversity of perspectives on an issue or an idea doesn't mean that there isn't clear truth on that issue as well. And we should value the pursuit of truth ahead of the pursuit of diversity for diversity's sake. The third reason it's really important that we prioritize truth is that bad answers result in bad discipleship. So if we embrace a, a perspective that is not good, it will have really dangerous and harmful results to the people we are seeking to love. Let me just walk you through my reasoning again. Number one, truth is exclusive. There is a truth and it's exclusive. Contradictory statements can't simultaneously be true, number one. Number two, not all perspectives are equally valid. Some of them are rooted in a good approach and some of them are not. Some of them are based on good ideas and some of them are not. And we need to distinguish between those because we are pursuing truth. And thirdly, the reason this is so important is that when we embrace bad answers, it will have bad consequences. And this is really why I'm so concerned about this. Bad ideas have consequences. If we are not clear on what is a good or a bad idea, we will end up hurting the very people we are seeking to love. You see, most of the time when we appeal to diversity of perspective, it's because we're trying to be uh, welcoming and affirming and inclusive and, and that sort of thing. But if we dispense of truth in the process of welcoming all perspectives, we actually end up hurting the very people we are trying to love. We're going to dive a lot deeper than that in the coming weeks. I want to give you a really good example of this from Scripture that kind of talks to this, this well, why do we need to be clear? Why is truth important? You see, there was no shortage of division in the early church on how to understand the meaning and implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And one of the most divisive issues was that of circumcision. Now, to us, it seems like a silly conversation, but it was so important because it got to the heart of the ethnic, uh, religious, spiritual, theological identities that people had assumed as Jewish or Gentile uh, in the first century. And the tension around it was, quite honestly, tearing the church apart. What's really interesting, though, is that Paul, when he navigates through these issues and he's trying to help the church discover what the truth is, he doesn't say, well, I guess there's multiple ways to understand this issue of circumcision, so I guess we'll just all agree to disagree. That's not what Paul did. He didn't just go sort of like, ah, I guess I guess the people who are for circumcision and those who are against it will just kind of agree to disagree. No. What Paul did was he contended, he fought for the truth. He wrote to the Galatians, he said, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? Strong language, because he wanted them to see that they were embracing an idea that wasn't true. In chapter 5, he says this, You were running so well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? When we read Paul's letter here, he was convinced that there was a truth, a right way and a wrong way. There were multiple perspectives, and he was clear that those multiple perspectives were not equally valid or equally good. Paul repeatedly instructs Timothy to fight the good fight for the faith, to defend that which is true. In the letter to Jude, he writes that we are to contend. To contend is to sort of uh, to, to get our elbows out, to, to, to position for the place of truth. Throughout the New Testament, it is not an environment where it's, well, let's just welcome a diversity of perspectives. No, it was an environment where truth was the primary goal and creating space for diverse perspectives to navigate their way to truth was the second goal. Why was Paul so emphatic? Because the issues at stake were directly related to the way that new Christians were discipled and integrated into the church family and subsequently released for mission. The issues that were at stake were the very issues that would define the health, mission, and purpose of the church in fulfilling Jesus' command to make disciples. It was necessary to be clear because there were real lives and real day-to-day discipleship at work. As a church, if we are going to do the hard work of discipling people who don't know Jesus and who have never encountered Jesus, the very worst thing we can do is to be shaky on our convictions of what is true. If we're going to lead people that have never met Jesus to the truth, which is our, our job, that's our job as Christians, is to contend for the truth, and we're trying to do that with non-believers, but we're unclear or shaky in our foundation, we are doing a disservice, we are being unkind and unloving to those we are discipling. This is so important in our culture today. For example, there's a really popular 
but ultimately, I believe, dangerous and harmful idea that exists in the church world right now. And it is, it's kind of positioned different ways and on different issues, but it's basically people talk about the third way. And the idea when we talk about third way is that, well, churches need to create an environment where instead of taking sides on a theological issue, they create an environment where lots of different perspectives can just agree to disagree. And on the surface, this seems really nice and kind, like, oh, great, we can have a church where we don't have to disagree on anything and everyone can agree and there can be uh, this perfect kind of, of sort of quasi-unity agreement. Now, if we're just talking about uh, personal preferences like music style or, uh, you know, whether we should have, like, what, what, you know, like whatever personal preference you have, fine, we can agree to disagree. We don't all need to agree, and that's great. There can be diversity in that. But on the real issues of our culture, you know, the ones that affect people's lives, that change how they live, that change what they think, clarity of truth is absolutely vital. And it is cruel to say to people that are navigating genuinely difficult questions that scripture genuinely speaks to, to say, well, I guess you're just on your own. That is not kind and that is not loving. When we refuse to be clear on what scripture teaches clearly, when we refuse to be clear on what scripture teaches clearly, we are allowing people to make themselves the authorities on truth rather than scripture. The Christian faith has always been rooted in an affirmation in the pursuit of truth from top to bottom. Our faith is built on this idea that there are things that are true, right, and good, and they are defined by God, and there are things that are not true, right, and good, also defined by God, and that is revealed in his scriptures. Listen to what Jesus said about himself. When he, Jesus described why he came, he said this, For this reason I came. Why did Jesus come? To bear witness to the truth. The whole point of Jesus' coming was to lead us towards truth. Truth is knowable. This is so important. I'm going to walk you through three really important conclusions here. Truth is knowable, number one. Truth is knowable through Scripture, number two. And where there are different perspectives, we must contend for the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that we're grumpy and angry and cantankerous, but it means that we care and love deeply enough to contend for and advocate for that which is true. There are lots of opinions, as I said, even in the church world, on really important issues. Issues such as what we do with our money, possessions, how we think about evangelism, conflicts, church, how we navigate sexuality and gender, and so forth. But Scripture also speaks really clearly to all of these things. 
And we are not loving or kind when we adopt a posture that says, I don't think Scripture speaks to that. Or I don't think Scripture speaks clearly enough to make a clear decision. And this is really good news because it means that when we are secure in the truth, when we are moored in the truth, when we are anchored in the truth, we can actually truly value diversity by listening to people we disagree with without fear and judgment. Do you see that? That when we value truth, it actually allows us to value diversity because it means we can be secure without fear, without judgment, and we can lovingly listen to other perspectives while contending for that which is good. We do not need to be fear we do not need to fear being swayed or influenced negatively. Instead, we can patiently and compassionately discuss and listen, but nonetheless contend for the truth vigorously. <clears throat> so this is the first part I wanted to really lean into is this idea that truth must overrule a mere pursuit of diversity. There is truth and it matters. But this leads naturally into the second, second thing. <laughs> so the first second thing was diversity of opinions. The second second thing I want to touch on briefly, which is closely related, is inclusivity. Inclusivity is the second thing. But it must be a second thing, not a first thing. In other words, we must seek inclusivity as a second thing behind the first thing that true freedom is found in the truth. Now, what do I mean? Well, let's talk about inclusivity for a second. The gospel is radically, beautifully, and wonderfully inclusive. In fact, I don't think there is a more inclusive message in the world I mean, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, our mission, our message, what's our message? To be reconciled to, be, to God. The message of Christianity is a message of inclusion. Be included into the family of God. Doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done. Be included, be reconciled to God. The story of the church is one of inclusion. One that takes people who should be enemies, Jew and Gentile, and it includes them together in one family. And this inclusion crosses ethnic, economic, gender, and other barriers. But the question we have to ask is, does our desire to be inclusive erode the power of truth to provide authentic freedom? He says again, does our desire to be accepting erode the power of truth to provide authentic freedom? So when we say that the gospel is inclusive, we must ask, what exactly are we inclusive of? Now, you see, if we value inclusivity as a first thing, we will be compelled, because inclusivity has been made a goal in and of itself, to include everything about everyone. 
What this means is that, and this is the, the idea of inclusivity in our culture, is that we must not just accept people, we must accept and affirm every part of how a person self-defines themselves. To be inclusive is not just to value the person, we must value how the person perceives themselves. In other words, Culturally, the idea of inclusion is that we cannot distinguish between a person and their ideas, beliefs, or behaviors. Culturally, to be inclusive, because it's a first thing, means that we must not just accept, but we must affirm that person's ideas, beliefs, or behaviors. However, as Christians, this is seriously problematic. Since the value of inclusivity must be anchored in the second thing. It must be a second thing to a first thing, which is that freedom is found in truth. You see, the gospel is radically inclusive of all people, but it is not inclusive of all ideas, beliefs, or behaviors. The gospel is radically inclusive of all people, not because people are perfect. No, the gospel is inclusive in the opposite sense. The gospel is inclusive because even though we are imperfect, even though we are not worthy of inclusion, the gospel is the power of freedom for those who believe. This means that the gospel is inclusive not by affirming that everyone is perfect as they are. The gospel is inclusive because it affirms the power of Christ to redeem them despite their imperfections. We are included into the family of God because of what Christ has done, not because of what's in me. Therefore, because of my inclusion into the family, what's in me must change because of what Christ has done. Why? Because he desires to set me free. Listen to the message of the gospel as Paul defines it in Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If the inclusion of the gospel means that we walk in freedom, it means that it cannot be inclusive of our ideas, beliefs, or behaviors. It is inclusive of our person, requiring that our person change in order to walk in freedom. Do you see that? In order for us to be included and walking in freedom, it means we must let go of parts of ourselves that are not good. They must not also be included. What includes us in the family? Christ's work, not our behavior. However, when we make inclusion a first thing in the gospel, we subtly begin to teach that people do not need to change when they receive Christ as Lord. This is harmful. In the world of crucial conversations, we call this ruinous empathy. Ruinous empathy is what happens when, out of a desire to be nice, 
we actually hurt people by failing to show them what is true. When out of a desire to be inclusive, we fail to speak the truth to our brothers and sisters and allow them to remain trapped or enslaved in their own sinfulness. And that is not good. That is not loving and that is not kind. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, truth producing freedom is the first thing we need to invite people to. Yes, we include them as a person, but we do not need to affirm every part of every human being exactly as they are. No, why? Because freedom awaits them. True freedom. Truth is liberating according to Jesus. True liberation is found in the truth of Jesus, not in our affirmative sense of inclusion. People will experience the greatest freedom when they encounter the full truth of Jesus, not when they are affirmed in every part of their behavior. I'll give you one example that it was kind of interesting. Early on in my leadership, I was hesitant to come down really strongly on unequally yoked relationships. That means relationships between um, a believer and a non-believer or a believer, like like they're a Christian, but they're really obviously not a Christian and a, and a Christian. And I was unwilling to, to really come down on them hard because, well, basically I, I wanted to, uh, to be really inclusive. I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to push anybody away. I didn't want to be, you know, too firm. I didn't want to be, you know, that guy. But what happened was that in every case where I failed to speak up, people became enslaved to bad ideas. They got stuck in relationships they shouldn't have been in. And that hurt them. That hurt them. And this happens all the time. A scripture really does speak clearly and it does invite us to freedom. But when we don't speak clearly on issues, when we, don't, when we aren't able to articulate the truth, we're actually robbing people of freedom. The goal of truth is not moralistic, legalistic behavior. That's not the goal here. The goal isn't to say, you must do these things, you must check these checkboxes. No. The message is, you are loved by Jesus, and his way is going to produce greater freedom for you. So let me show you his way. This is what Paul was trying to rectify in Galatians 4. He says, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? The message of Christianity is to come and be free. Be free of, of your behavior. Be free of how you have self-identified. Be free from the decisions that you have made that have been harmful. Be free of them and live in the way of Jesus, which is better. When we properly value the life-giving and freedom 
creating capacity for truth, it allows us to be properly and lovingly inclusive. Because it allows us to cherish every person as a member or potential member of the family of God while not affirming decisions that they make that are harmful to them. It allows us to call people to be different to a better, more life-giving way while simultaneously loving them and including them in family. But on the other hand, when we allow inclusivity to become a goal in and of itself, we allow people to be enslaved to their lifestyles, desires, or self-perceptions, and that is not good. That is not kind. It is not loving. So that's what I wanted to dive into today in objectivity, not opinions. Number one, church, we need to value truth. And out of truth, create space for diversity. Out of a confidence in contending for the truth, we create space for diversity. And number two, yes, we can value inclusivity, but we include people, not necessarily ideas, behaviors, or perceptions. Next week, we're going to dive even deeper into this in terms of how do we uh, think about objectivity, not opinions, in terms of valuing the good second thing of people's personal experiences. Personal experiences are important. We're going to talk about why they're important, but they're a second thing, not a first thing. And we're also going to talk about this idea of my personal spirituality, the individual approach to our journey with Jesus. It's true, we do all have individual relationships with Jesus, but it's a a second thing, not a first thing. And we're going to talk about how there's actually a better way. So we'll get into q and I'm going to slide things over here. We'll welcome Levi to help me just identify the questions. And looking forward to hearing from you guys. So just give me one sec. We'll be back in questions in a sec. Drop them in the chat. Looking forward to reading them. stuck out to you from what I was sharing today so we have for questions to come in honestly I kept throwing out a bunch of things because it kept I was like crap I'm I keep messing up in in uh, mm. trying to like please others before fighting for the truth and that is something I constantly struggle with so that mm-hmm. was a huge part <laughs> yeah, that's good um, well I see we got a question that came in from John here do you want to read it and then I'll uh, yeah I love speaking John's voice. Um, How do we contend for truth in loving ways, especially in an atmosphere where people easily feel disrespected or offended? And how do we reconcile the idea of truth being offensive yet still trying to be respectful? Mm. That's really good. I think um, 
obviously I didn't talk about tactics on how to do this. I was really just trying to get at least the truth of the idea out there. Mm. Um, not so much the tactics on how to walk this idea out. Um, I think that the goal is never to be, the goal should never to be to offend. Mm. We may sometimes yeah. offend and that's okay, but we should never seek to offend. And sometimes Christians can be a, a little bit, uh, I think, uh, too quick to be like, well, I'm just, I was offensive. Well, they were offended. That's their problem. Well, mm. I think we want to be cautious to listen. Mm-hmm. A couple, um, a couple kind of quick thoughts here. One is that what we can do is that we can create an environment where people know they are loved. Mm. And our ability to speak truth to people needs to be connected to an environment where they know they are loved. It's very hard to speak truth to people that don't know they are loved. Mm-hmm. And so when Christians try to just shout truth into the ether, mm-hmm. outside of the context of a real church family that's flesh and bones, sharing meals, doing life together, mm-hmm. our truth has no relationship. So speaking truth must be connected to relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really important. Um, we should not just yell at people um, that we have no relationship with. Yeah. Um, this is why I don't typically talk to other churches anymore. It's like not my job. My job is to lead our church. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, to care for the disciples that God has entrusted to me and speak into their lives. Uh, and so I'd say like keep it rooted in relationship is probably um, the main thing there. Yeah. Um, so, Good answer. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the the second question up here, follow, the follow up from John, or no, sorry, from Jesse. Jesse, yeah. yeah. Um, he's wondering how this topic intersects with the exhortation in Romans for the believers in Rome to, with regard to kosher laws, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Um, if it is the objective truth that nothing is unclean in itself, then why does it look like Paul is asking people to let others observe whatever kosher traditions they want as long as each of them is fully convinced uh, in their own mind? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. For context um, on Jesse's question, there is some, some instances where Paul basically says to the church um, that there's room for flexibility. Mm-hmm. And he what he actually does is he teaches the church to... to um, t- to basically defer to the weaker brother. Mm. So if somebody is like feeling, uh, um, what's the word? In the specific case, like they were like, I don't need convicted. to. Convicted. They were feeling convicted that they need. Thank you. That they needed to follow the dietary laws, but others didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, then Paul basically says, like, look, like just get over it and like, just don't argue about it. Mm-hmm. I think the key thing, and this is so important, Jesse, is that Paul does not give leeway where the question is one of, of morality or sinfulness in terms of affirming the behavior. He never says, well, it's okay for you to sin because your other brother thinks it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. It's important that on issues of, of holiness, we're always moving towards holiness. Mm. Um, and, and that's... I think really vitally important here. Um, We don't want to be like, well, you know, that maybe isn't a sin or that's not really an issue when scripture says that it is. Mm. 
And so what Paul's getting at here is basically a, um, an opportunity to be flexible, but where that flexibility wouldn't result in sinfulness. Yeah. That makes sense. And so like to kind of respect people enough to like know what that they're getting, um, that they, uh, are getting offended and, or that they are personally convicted by something, um, that it's a it's a sin for them, and so, um, for to go against that is just encouraging uh, them to sin. If you if you don't know that, um, I feel like you encourage them to go against their convictions, and it's right. Yeah, right. I think that that in the case where neither party, where there's there's some room for flexibility, is the point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Laura asks a good question here. Um, how can we work through the practical side of fearless urgency? With uh, when we want to see inclusive inclusivity as a second thing, like how can we have those conversations with people without going too far into ruinous empathy? I think it's important that we really keep in our minds straight what it is that we are including. We can be fearlessly, urgently inclusive of people, mm. and. We, in our minds, can be fiercely, urgently inclusive of people regardless of their behavior. I will welcome mm. anyone into my home. It doesn't matter what their perspective is or what their attitude is or what their issue is. Why? Because Christ has compelled me to love them, so I will yeah. love them. So I think the, our inclusivity must be of people first and foremost. Mm. And as long as I think we keep that straight in our mind, what, what we're including is we're loving people. And there might be some awkward tension there, and I think we need to, that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so, Adam's typing something, so hopefully it's a good question. Um, yeah, there's probably some more questions coming in here. Yeah. Um, so, the other thought I would quickly add on, on Jesse's point here is that um, a lot of what Paul was talking about in that Romans context had to do with like the formation of healthy churches in terms of um, helping them walk out community together. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep them coming, guys. See if there's some more questions coming in. Um, did you want me to expand on that, Abby, or do you feel like you kind of got a handle on it? Um, how can we be, Adam asks a great question here, how can we be inclusive of other cultural contextualizations of the gospel? Wow, that is quite an interesting question, um, Adam. I understood it I probably would answer but <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, what Adam's asking is that different cultural contexts will understand the gospel in slightly different terms mm. and sometimes those terms may seem to be at odds with um, with our perspective mm-hmm. and that can be quite a, a thorny uh, issue to navigate mm-hmm. so for example if you are running into like a gospel contextualization in say India um what I would say in general, Adam, is that uh, I think we need to be super, super careful and super, super gracious, um, but 
to really listen carefully to how the gospel is um, being articulated, but then we also really need to go back to our first principles mm-hmm. on the gospel. What do we? What can we be really, really, really sure of? And um, what needs to and and should sort of translate across cultures fairly cleanly? Mm-hmm. And and then try to understand. Okay, how have we culturally understood this idea, and how accurately is it reflected in this other culture? Mm. Um, So the core idea here, I think, is to try to be clear on distilling our gospel down Mm -hmm. to some of the core elements. And so um, whether it's, uh, so for example, uh, the idea of sin is sometimes contextualized uh, in in sort of a shame-honor dimension or maybe Mm -hmm. in a like a right versus wrong moral dimension. Mm. And it's not that one of those is always right and always wrong, but we just want to be clear to say, okay, is the core essence of the gospel being translated here? Mm. So I, I hope that, um, uh, I hope that that kind of gets to it, to it, Adam. But uh, if you want to read more on that, uh, I would actually say Leslie Newbigin's Foolishness to the Greeks Uh, specifically speaks to the question of how do we contextualize the gospel accurately into other cultures and a really great read. Um, If you want to dive deeper on it, I can do a plug. Um, And then Dan added, um, or even how can we be uh, inclusive of different practices as opposed to different truths, or if we should be? Um, So that's a really good question. So how can we be inclusive of different practices as opposed to different truths? So again, I think what you're getting at here is that there are practices like somebody works their faith out in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have the skill of going back to first principles. Um, not all practices come from the same place and not all practices have good roots. And so does it have good roots? Like mm-hmm. is, it, is it coming from a well thought out, holistic, gospel centered place that is faithful to the gospel? Yeah. So it might, the practice might seem kind of neutral or okay but we want to go like does it have good roots and i think really go to the roots of some of these things and so um a lot of the time i think christians end up embracing practices that are actually anti-gospel or not really uh, faithful to the gospel because they seem neutral or ambiguous on the surface but they have bad roots Mm. um and so um i could go on a whole plug there so um, yes, uh, Rosaria Butterfield does actually speak to a lot of what I was talking about tonight quite quite well. She's she's a, a good a, had some really great thoughts on the subject. So mm. yeah, uh, let's see if there's some anything else coming in here. Lots of books to read. <laughs> it's good. Reading is good. Make sure you're reading scripture before you're reading books. Uh, otherwise you can find a book that would say just about anything you want it to say but yes read lots <laughs> so just see here Got a helpful not so helpful gif so helpful <laughs> All right, we'll give you guys another 30 seconds to get a question in. Mm. If you have a question and we're not going to get to it, say, please wait. Otherwise, we're going to wrap her up. Scream. More books. There you go. Adam's affirming Newbigin. Newbigin's like my, 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 like my jam. 
Uh, haven't read uh, Laman's book, but that sounds interesting. So maybe I'll give that a read. There you go. Mm. Um, so when we start with the first thing of truth, how do we incorporate intentionally seeking diverse opinions well? Oh, that is a really good question. So I would say that the way that we embrace diverse opinions um, should probably be done in community. Mm. So uh, I think something that is really helpful is if we just say to the person that we're deciding, like, hey, I was going to go read this book. Um, do you mind, like, if I process some of what I'm learning with you? Um, so go to someone we trust and invite them into the process mm. so that we're not just uh, sort of going on this rabbit trail on our own. It can be really, really helpful yeah. uh, and takes a fair bit of humility to do that. Um, so I think uh, having something of a communal uh, chapter to or <laughs> communal approach to, uh, to doing that is really helpful. Mm. Um, the other thing we could do is I would say... Uh, When you find something that you find is compelling, mm -hmm. it's important that, again, you go back to first principles and ask, what first principles is this undermining? Mm -hmm. um, because something can seem really, really good on the surface. Uh, I've noticed this a lot, is that people will embrace an idea because it feels good. We'll kind of use this intuitive sense, like, I really want this to be true. Mm -hmm. And we're not super good at challenging the assumptions behind arguments. And so I think developing the skill of going, why does this feel attractive if you find yourself kind of uh, going into it? So, mm. love that. Um, but yeah, I think that's all for tonight. Um, and we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. Love you guys very much. Hope you have a great week. See you.